Amen. I'm, uh, I'm giving my iPad a workout today, and I'm praying that the battery will last. But i uh, got to get my notes out here. So we will be looking today at Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. Matthew chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. And follow along with me as I read those to you. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us that the kingdom is at hand. It is near. It is within arm's reach. It is something that we can take a hold of, but only by repentance. Only by turning from our love of sin and to a love of our Savior. And so we want to, we want to begin there today. By confessing our affection for you. For all that you have done for us and through us in Christ. Lord, we, um, we want to open eyes and, and soft hearts as we approach your word. We might understand it. But more than just understanding it, that we might submit to it. And Lord, today's passage is a challenging one. It, it assaults our comfort. Maybe even assaults some of the ways we've gone about our Christian lives. So would you give us a willingness to respond in obedience? Even uh, when challenged. And may we find that what's on the other end of that challenge is glorious. Lord, we, we need you to forgive us for what we have done. But more than that, we need, to, we, we need you to forgive us for, for who we still are. Lord, because there is not a moment that goes by any day where we do not fall short of your glory. And therefore, every moment is a moment that we need grace whether actively engaged in sin that we're aware of or simply falling short of your glory second by second, day by day. And yet, you, Lord, you have loved us. You've redeemed us. You've called us. You've chosen us. You have made us part of your family. Lord, we want to lift requests to you today. Lord, we want to continue to pray for the Brennans. Uh, Lord, I'm grateful to be able to pray for them by name. I'm grateful to not have to worry about live streams, to not have to worry about um, people neglecting the fellowship of the church. 
because they can simply consume a service online, but to be gathered and to hear your people sing your praise is glorious this morning. Thank you for that. In the busyness of being gone so much in recent weeks, Lord, I have missed that. And to stand up here this morning and to hear your church sing your praise is good for my soul. And I thank you for that. Lord, back to the Brennans, we just thank you for their presence among us. We thank you for the time they have here. We thank you for the opportunity that they have to trust you in the work that they have left behind. Knowing that it is not he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only you who gives the increase. And we pray for an increase of fruit and faith in the lives of the people there. That as they are here, they have left there your word and your spirit and that is enough. So we ask you to do great things through them in their presence and great things there in their absence. We pray that this might be a time of joy and fellowship and rejoicing. Lord, I pray that we as a church would have open homes and hearts and lives. That we would be quick to engage, quick to invite, quick to love on and share our lives with them. Lord, we pray also and, and we want to continue to pray for Kinsey's uncle Matt and for the good news that uh, continues to come, and it seems to be a little bit of three steps forward and three steps back. But, Father, we, uh, we just thank you for all the good news despite the difficulty. We pray that you would give comfort to them, knowing that that means strength, strength to, uh, to him, strength to his wife, strength to their children and family who care for them, wisdom to doctors. And, Lord, we pray for a, a recovery that is far beyond what we could want in terms of just speed and effectiveness, that you would be well uh, soon, Lord. Lord, we pray also for Reese Wright following her surgery with this uh, first appendix. And um, as the family is over there in Portland at OHSU and caring for her and has been told they could be anywhere f there from anywhere from two to ten days. So there's a bit of unknown there right now. But Father, we pray that you would give Reese relief from pain, a quick recovery, and, and an opportunity for them to, uh, to come home. So, Lord, we, uh, as we turn now to your word, we just ask again that you would reveal it to us uh, in, in terms of meaning, but also in terms of obedience and application. We ask it all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard a rumor as I was walking in here today. I didn't have a chance to write it down, and I just remembered while I was praying. I'm standing around. Are the Deshawskis here somewhere? Come to second service. Well, it's Bob's birthday. So, what's that? You gave me the wrong name. Well, somebody's birthday today. Whose birthday is it? Back here. Oh, it's Glenn Vogt's birthday. 85 years old. That is not Bob Dashofsky. <laughs> you thought you and Bob had the same birthday for a minute there, didn't you? Well, happy birthday, Glenn. It's, uh, it's good to have you here and to see you well and serving the Lord at, at 85. Um, I believe I must open today's sermon with a confession. And, and that confession is that I've spent years, maybe even decades, thinking that the church's priority was to mature disciples. 
the church's first priority was to mature disciples. And I believe that I was wrong in that. And if that sounds strange, let me qualify it before you freak out. But, but the text that has driven that thinking in my mind is Ephesians 4, 12 through 13. And, and in Ephesians, uh, Paul tells us that God, through Christ, has gifted the church. And that he has gifted the church particularly with four offices. And I believe that those offices in the church are presented there chronologically. That first were given apostles, then prophets who finished off writing the New Testament, then evangelists who went out and, and shared the gospel and planted churches, and then pastors. And then at the end of verse 11, where, where those pastors and teachers, which is one office, not two, I could explain that to you later if you want, are, are told this, that they are given to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And the reality is, is that Ephesians 4, properly understood in its context, is my job description, not the church's mission. It is my job, and, and any pastor or elder's job, to, to preach the word. The, the next verses say, speaking the truth in love. In fact, in the Greek, speaking isn't there. It just says, truthing in love. We speak the truth of God. Whether it's Chris or Thad or Edgar or me, you pay us to preach the word of God, and you should expect no less. Because 1 Timothy tells us that those who are paid are paid because they especially labor in preaching and teaching. But this is our job description. This is not the church's mission. Now again, if this sounds a little off to you, note that I did not say that I think it was an error in thinking that the church's mission is to make disciples. The church's mission is most certainly to make disciples. But what I said and what I confessed is that I had spent years, maybe even decades, thinking that the church's priority was to mature disciples. That if we just preach the word, if we just are faithful to, to do what God has called us to do in this building, people out there will get saved. Unbelievers will become converts. Converts will come here. They will become disciples, and, and the, the process will go round and round and round. But the truth of the matter is, that's not what happens. The church that we go to, uh, to, to help out with with crew hosts about five churches in their building. Now, I understand that there's a, a value and a place in the world for, for churches with different uh, maybe convictions on certain things that don't matter, uh, that aren't matters of the gospel or, or worship styles. I am not opposed to different churches and denominations, but I couldn't help but to think would these churches not do better all meeting in the same place, in the same building, often at the same times, to join together for the good of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel? But you know what's interesting to me? 
The church that owns the building and hosts these five other churches has lots of money. They renovated a youth room and it's cool and there's no youth. It's being used by another church, Bedrock, in fact, who we partner with. Um, the, the auditorium is probably similarly in size to this, maybe a little larger, and they just have like three rows of chairs in the front for their services. And it's, it's empty. And, and I think it's a church who's been led into this conviction. That if we just mature disciples, if we just dig deep into God's word, if we just preach the word, it'll happen automatically. But the reality is, is that what we see in, in, in research, and I believe in scripture, is that when a church refuses to evangelize, God closes its doors. In, in the opening chapters of Revelation, the vision of John is of Jesus walking through these seven golden lampstands that are churches. And they're told things like, if you don't, uh, Ephesians in particular, the Ephesian church is told, you've done all these good things. You've stood up against heresy. You've towed the line on truth. You have stood up to those who oppose what is right. But I have this against you. You have forgotten your first love. Return to that love. Do the works you did at first. What are those first works? I believe those are the works of evangelism. This church was giving itself to uh, uh, battling for the truth, but not for its spread. And Christ says, if you don't, I will remove your lampstand from you. And of course, you can pay lots of money to go on a tour of Turkey and Greece and see the ruins of where all these seven churches were. And they don't exist today. Their lampstands have been removed. The reality is, the mission of the church is not to mature disciples. That is only one part of what it means to make disciples. The church is not called to do less than that. Please hear me on that. I'm not saying that the church should be ten miles wide and an inch deep. What I'm saying is that the church should be incredibly deep, but should be indiscriminate and, 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 and fervent in, in our desire to sow the seed of the gospel in the world. And so we have this text today where Jesus calls his first disciples. And notice he does not call them first to be studiers of the word. He does not call them first to be exacting theologians. He calls them first and foremost to be fishers of men. And one of the things that baffles me about Jesus' method of making disciples is that while he is simultaneously 
telling them that he is going to die, and then telling them not to tell anyone about that because their understanding of his death and resurrection is so confused. Simultaneously, he is sending them out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He doesn't say, guys, come on in. Peter is married. He's got a house. He's got a business. His mother-in-law's house is pretty big. I've been there. You know, hey, we've got this place. Let's hunker down for three years and open the scriptures, and I will explain them to you, and then once I'm dead, you will go out and be my witnesses. No, no. He sends them out immediately and does all those other things. One of the things we'll see over and over again in the book of Matthew is that Jesus will preach a sermon, people will be confused, sometimes including his disciples, and then he gathers them and explains it further. He spends time with them. Even after his death, he meets some, of the, uh, so, some people on, a, what is it, the road to Emmaus, I think, and explains to them, as Luke says, from all the scriptures, from Genesis through Malachi, because that was all the scriptures at that time, how they're all about him. He took people deep in his word. He sent his spirit to, to, to uh, lead the apostles and the prophets in writing this word that is deep and profound. He wants us to be diligent students of the word. And diligent evangelists as well. And I think sometimes what happens is we've taken the, the order of the way our Christian walk is to go and we've reversed it. Well, I'm a believer, and so now I'm going to just soak up everything I can. I'm going to learn. I'm going to feed. I'm going to grow. Give me more. Give me more. Give me more. I'm going to go to an adult Bible class, and then Sunday service, or Sunday service, and then an adult Bible class, and I'm going to go to precepts, and I'm going to go to um, what's uh, Bible study fellowship, and I'm going to have a growth group, and I'm going to go to another church for their Bible study, and man, I'm just soaking in all that I can, but not putting anything in, not, not building relationships with the lost, not telling people of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Stu and Jill Briscoe have faithfully served the Lord for a long time. I believe Jill uh, heard the gospel and believed uh, from a roommate in a hospital bed. Is that right? Well, I think that's right. And this roommate was like, okay, now that you're a believer, your job is to tell somebody else about Jesus, and there's a nurse going to come through here. And she was like, I can't do that. I don't know anything. And, she, and her roommate was like, or her, uh, her roommate in this hospital was like, well, you know enough to tell this, this nurse what you know. And she did. I don't know what the response of that was, but somebody then asked her years later, because Stu was a pastor and Jill was a speaker, somebody asked her, when did you receive your call to ministry? She said, I, I didn't really understand the question. I received my call to ministry the moment I became a believer. And so did you. And so did I. Not, not to be consumers. The church is full of church consumers. And, and you know, they're pretty obvious. I'm going to level with you guys. 
Andy Stanley talks about double-barrel preaching, and he doesn't mean it the same way I am, but this is going to be some double-barrel preaching this morning. I'm going to fire both barrels. It's easy to spot church consumers. Because when the church stops giving them what they want, they just go somewhere else. I ran into a pastor of another church in town. And, and, and that church is part of a, a circuit, including us, of this revolving door of people who move around. Now, I'm not saying there's never a reason to leave a church, okay? But I didn't get my way is a really bad reason to leave a church. And, and we were talking, and, and I, I kind of had made a comment about that. And he made this joke. He said, yeah, we're, well, and I'll put our name on it so that I don't put that, that church's name on it. He said, yeah, we're going to make a fortune. We're going to make bumper stickers that says, I used to go to Trinity Baptist. Man, there's a ton of people who could put that on their car. Now, God moves his people at some, at some times, and I don't deny that at all. And sometimes there's a good reason to find another church. But, but consumers, they come to get what they want, and as soon as they don't get it, they leave. Or, or they, they, they complain when their preferences aren't met, when the music style isn't their favorite. Or, how about this one? What's the most important ministry to you in Trinity outside of Sunday morning services? What if tomorrow God called us to stop doing that ministry? Does that cause you to leave? As I was reading through my Bible reading plan this year, Romans chapter 15 hit me in a way that it never had before. But in talking uh, much in chapter 14 about laying down our preferences to serve others, to care for others, to do good for others, Romans chapter 15 verse 1 says this, we who, have, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And, and here's why this verse hit me so hard. Is because I think often, and I'm going to include myself in this, I think often those who see themselves as most mature in the faith often are those who seek most to please themselves. Which means they are not strong but are in fact weak. It is the weak in the church who demand their preferences. It is the weak in the church who demand their way. It is the weak in the church who move along when something does not go their way on a matter that's not really all that important. See, we've done this because we, we approach the Christian life in uh, we, we, maybe even discipleship as though the number one thing we're supposed to do is consume. Consume a service, consume a sermon, consume a class, consume uh, some other kind of content, consume worship. 
when, when the music is so loud that it becomes about the performers on stage and not the voice of the church, we might be more interested in consuming something than participating in something. And on a Sunday morning when music is played, the people up here are not the performers. We all are, and God is the audience. We should not just consume sermons, which we can do online, but participate in them, engage in them, talk to others about them, and our children about them. uh, One of the things that I love when we have holidays around here is, is the language of attend one, serve one. We've got two services, attend one service and, and serve in one service. Could you imagine this place if we all did that? I know the restaurant opens at 11. But, but what if, what if instead of concerning yourself with merely feeding yourself from God's word or maybe from a plate that you were concerned with feeding somebody else which we recently saw in Jesus temptation with the word that that has eternal effect and value on the bread that man can live on alone think it would be incredible but we've reversed the order we've said hey we you need to just consume and consume and consume and consume and thinking that at some point that consumer mentality is going to shift into a server mentality most often it does not now to be clear I'm not trying to lower our view of discipleship for the purpose of raising our view of evangelism. I'm asking to hold a high view of discipleship while simultaneously increasing our view of the importance of evangelism. Let me show you why I've come to this conviction. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus looking at Jerusalem says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. This is his heart. This is his desire to gather his children to himself. John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. We learn it, we memorize it, we make posters at football games. But let's not let the immense power of the truth in it escape us. God loved the world in this manner, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Luke 19.10, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the spirit. Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they, that is the, the 
church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, by the way, this is why this is so important, day by day they didn't attend their own church building together. They went to a public place of worship uh, where, where non-believers gathered to worship. Why? For the purpose of evangelism. And probably, in this context, for having a space big enough. Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They gathered together as a church for worship. They gathered in homes for fellowship and hospitality and evangelism. And they went out with the gospel praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> Excuse me. Saul o approved of his execution. That's the execution of Stephen. And there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Where is the rest of that? I don't have all the... But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Why do I bring that up? What does that have to do with evangelism? Well, what we see in the rest of this is that persecution came upon the church. And, and I think specifically designed by God for the purpose of scattering the church. What does God do when a church comes so obsessed with its gathering that it forgets to scatter? He forces it through persecution. Because the scattering is as important as the gathering. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. This same burning passion we see in Christ was in Paul, Romans 9, 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I'm not sure that I love you all that much. I'm not sure I could in any modicum of honesty stand before God and say, God, I would be damned to hell for eternity if you would just save them. But Paul did. Romans 10.1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Matthew 28.19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And maybe the icing on the cake, Daniel 12.3. And those who are wise shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
Because how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Church, evangelism should be a first step in your faith, not a last. And we reverse this too often to make spiritual gluttons of ourselves. This brings us to our text today that I want to look at briefly. It is a simple text. And then I want us to see three characteristics of disciples of Jesus. Three characteristics of disciples of Jesus. We'll pick up in verse 18. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, this is a sea in the north uh, eastern region of, of Israel. It is almost eight or 700, somewhere, somewhere around seven or 800 feet below sea level. Interestingly enough, Here's a good point that I, I haven't thought of uh, sharing before now. The, the Sea of Galilee is a, is a sea that is full of life. Now, sea was the common term used by Hebrews for a, a lake like this. And so Matthew, a good Hebrew, uses the term sea here, whereas Luke prefers the word, being a Gentile, prefers the word lake. But did you know that the Dead Sea, where nothing lives and it's called because it's dead, and it's full of salt and minerals and nothing can live in it, is connected by the Jordan River to the, the Sea of Galilee? They, they are connected bodies of water. What is the difference between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? The Sea of Galilee has an inlet in the north where water flows in. And it's teeming with life even though it's well below sea level. And it has an outlet in the south where the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. However, the Dead Sea has no outlet. And all of the same things that flow into the Sea of Galilee then flow south to the, the, through the Jordan River into the Dead Sea. But there's no outlet to the Dead Sea. And so everything that it brings in just builds and builds and builds and builds until it's lifeless. Could it be that, that might, might, might be some, there might be some spiritual analogy there? That what God has designed us for and where there is spiritual life is, is an immense input of resource from him to be matched only by an immense output. But that to be spiritual consumers is certain death. To be clear, I'm not saying that you can't be saved if all you do is consume spiritual resources. I am saying, however, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, I am saying you can't be like Jesus and merely be a spiritual consumer. You can be saved and be a spiritual consumer. But you can't be like Jesus and be a spiritual consumer. It doesn't work that way. And so walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. There were three main ways of fishing in that day. One was from a boat where a large round net was tossed, uh, and, and similarly to that, and, and as it sunk, it would catch fish. Similarly to that, a net like that could be cast from the shore, and then uh, larger boats could also drag nets between them. 
So Simon, who is Peter and his brother, are standing on the shore, casting nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. This makes sense. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. There's the call. Right now, you're fishing for fish. Right now, you're providing a living for yourself. Right now, you've been, you're doing what you've been taught to me. But, but follow me, and, and I, will, I will give you a better purpose. I will give you a higher purpose. I will make you a fisher of men. Not a scribe, just consuming all the spiritual resources I, you can. But a fisher of men. Notice how, how quickly they respond. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now, if you read the word immediately in the book of Mark, you should question whether it means immediately. Mark is an urgent book, and everything happens super fast in Mark. And like between everything, even things that we know didn't happen immediately, he says, and immediately, and immediately Jesus went here, and the disciples went there, and these people did this, and these people did that, and it's this very fast-paced book. Matthew is not like that. When he says immediately, it means immediately. And so immediately, they're like, we're working. We got a business. You come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, Peter and Andrew are older here. We know Peter was married. Later, he, he, uh, we, we'll meet his mother-in-law in the, the Gospels. He's one of the older disciples. And, and he just says, okay, I'll follow you. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. I'm not sure they always knew what they were following him into. And I think sometimes we forget. But let's not, let's not forget that where he was going was the cross. Where he was going was to die. To bear the consequence of our sin. To, to, to bear the wrath of God in our place, even though he didn't deserve it. And then from the cross to the grave, which could not hold him or keep him. But he was resurrected three days later. And his call to them was not to just follow him, but to take up their cross and follow him. In other words, to die to themselves to be like him. Literally, this reads, to, to, to be after me, or something along those, those lines. It's not an exact translation, but he's, he's basically saying, get behind me and go exactly where I go and do exactly what I do. Follow me. Get behind me. And I will make you fishers of men. Why will he make them fishers of men if they get behind him? Because he was a fisher of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. They had probably been fishing overnight. Now they were repairing their nets we see in the book of Mark, uh, though I'm probably not going to take the time to look at it today, that when they left, Zebedee, their father, was left with his, in, in his boat with the servants. 
In other words, big boat, big operation, employees. And these two young men were called to leave their father's wealthy business that they were certainly going to inherit, successful business, business that supported multiple households to follow him. They weren't just leaving fishing, and they weren't just leaving poverty. In fact, what we know about both of these sets of brothers is they probably weren't leaving impoverished situations. This isn't probably like, I'm hungry and desperate for my next meal, and now this rabbi is inviting me along. These are successful commercial operations. And these two young brothers, still working with their father, mending their nets, they received this call as well. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Immediately they left the business, they left their family, and they followed Jesus. And I want us to see from this text today three characteristics of a disciple, and we will go quickly. First, disciples live like Jesus. That's what the word disciple means. That's what a mafetes in in the Greek is. A, A disciple is somebody who followed around their rabbi, their teacher, learning to do what he did. You could think of it in many ways like a, a journeyman type uh, 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 of scenario here, but in terms of higher education. If you want to become a plumber or an electrician, you need some education, but you also have to apprentice under a journeyman electrician or plumber so that you can follow him, see what he does, have your work inspected by him, and learn to do the things that he does. Rabbis in particular, as there were different schools of thought and theology and beliefs and all these kind of things, they wanted to expand their ideology. And so there was something built into a rabbi and his disciples that was more than just, hey, come do what I'm doing, but, but do what I'm doing, learn from me, and, and expand it. Interestingly, this, this learning from a rabbi in, in Jewish culture was often called the rabbi's yoke as in a yoke between oxen. And and you would hitch yourself to a rabbi. You would pull a burden with the rabbi. You would take on his burden to do what he does. Does this make so much sense for us of Matthew 11, where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for He's asking them to hitch themselves to him, to do what he does. If you you call yourself a Christian, the word inherently means little Christ. To define yourself as a Christian means you're, you're defining yourself as one who is striving to be like him. To not only know what he knew, to love what he loved, to live like he lived, but to do the things that he did. Jesus called them to be fishers of men because he was a fisher of men. And the call is no different to you and me. So first, disciples live like Jesus. Secondly, disciples call other people to be disciples. 
Disciples call other people to be disciples. They are fishers of men. This was their task. This is your task. This is my task. Let me be very clear, if I may, and very bold. If you're not calling others to become disciples, you're not a disciple. Now again, I'll say you can be saved and not share the gospel with the lost. But you can't claim to be a disciple, you can't claim to be a Jesus follower and not be a fisher of men. Not tell people about Christ. Not die to yourself, take up your cross and tell others what he has done. If you're not helping others to become disciples who are not yet disciples, then I don't know what you mean when you say you are. If you're not helping people to follow Jesus inside the church and outside the church, I don't know what you mean when you say you do. Because if you're not helping others to become mature disciples or beginning disciples, I, I don't know what you mean when you say you're a disciple. I read one story of, uh, as I was studying for this text, of an Italian hermit. Lived very frugally, lived very isolated, hid himself in his uh, apartment, what would amount to an apartment. And upon his death, some of the few friends he had in the world uh, were going through his, good, his goods. They found 246 expensive violins stashed in his house. Some of them were Stradivarius. I was at Jennifer's grandma's house one day, and she had this old guitar that wasn't very nice and was difficult to play. And she's like, well, I've got my dad's guitar. Now, your grandma's how old? 86. She's 86 right now. And this was her dad's guitar that she could remember him playing when he was, when she was a little girl. I said, oh, grandma, I'd love to see that sometime. I can't remember the model it was, but she brought out this Gibson acoustic guitar. I said, Grandma, you need, it. I don't think it was, it's not, it's, it's older than, than the Hummingbird one. I thought it was. I said, Grandma, you need to have this appraised. So she gave it to somebody in the family who had it appraised at like $27,000. This thing needed to be played, it needed strings, it needed to not be hidden in a closet. Some research would suggest that 95% of Christians have not shared their faith with somebody who's an unbeliever. If that's you, now, now let me rephrase that. That's an incorrect statement. 95% of Christians have never led somebody to Christ. Those are two different statements. If that's you, it's like taking a Stradivarius and hiding it in your dresser drawer. God has made us incredibly valuable, wonderful instruments tuned 
to declare his praise. Not to be tucked inside the church. There's to be inlet and outlet into the church, not, not just inlet. Thirdly, disciples live by kingdom priorities. Disciples live by kingdom priorities. Peter was married, and he, and he left, not, not in terms of like divorcing, but he left his wife at home to care for the house while he followed Jesus. Not particularly a, a wealth-generating prospect. His brother did the same. James and John left their father's lucrative business. Jesus says there's not somebody who would not. He doesn't say you have to. He just calls us all to be willing to leave family and, and business, maybe location. Whatever it is, there's, there's not a, a, a thing in our lives that God is not calling us to be willing to give up to have what he possesses. And these men counted the cost. And they didn't follow him because they thought they would get rich. They followed him because, because he was the Messiah. And before even all the apostles are formed up, we've got apostles going to people saying, we think we found him. We think we found the Messiah. They knew that these things were not more valuable than following Christ. Your fifth Bible study is not more valuable than following Christ. And if you're going to your fifth Bible study and you're not evangelizing the lost, you're not following Christ. Your business not more valuable than Christ. Your family is not more valuable than Christ. Now, fortunately, Christ is not asking you to give up your family. But he is asking you to love him supremely over all things. Disciples live by kingdom priorities. I want to close with one story that I'm going to read word for word out of a commentary because it was too good not to include. So follow along with this allegory, if you will. On a dangerous sea coast where shipwrecks were frequent, a crude little life-saving station was built. The building was just a hut and there was only one boat, but the few devoted crewmen kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for themselves, they went out day or night, tires, tirelessly searching for any who might need help. Many lives were saved by their devoted efforts. After a while, the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, as well as others in the surrounding area, wanted to become part of the work. They gave time and money for its support. New boats were bought, additional crews were trained, and the station grew. Some of the members became unhappy that the building was so crude. They felt a larger, nicer place would be more appropriate as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with hospital beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. 
Soon the station became a popular gathering place for its members to discuss the work and to visit with each other. They continued to remodel and decorate until the station more and more took on the look and character of a club. Few members were interested in going out on life-saving missions, so they hired professional crews to do the work on their behalf. The life-saving motif still prevailed on the club's emblems and stationery, and there was a liturgical lifeboat in the room where the club held its initiation. One day, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in many boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty, bruised, and sick, and so the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities altogether as being unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. Some members insisted on keeping life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, they were still called a life-saving station. But those members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own station down the coast somewhere. As the years went by, the new station gradually faced the problems the other one had experienced. It, too, became a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to life-saving began another station. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. What are we going to be? Are we going to be a good Christian social club? Or has God put us here as a life-saving station? Yes, it's messy. Yes, it's dirty. Yes, stuff gets broken. Isn't that a description of each and every one of us before Christ? The goal is to reach 500 families in five years. And as we seek that goal, as we pray about that goal, as we consider dying to ourselves and taking up the cross, Trinity will have to decide what we will be. A life-saving station or a social club? And our decision may be the difference between whether or not we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Lord, we want to be good and faithful servants. We want to be more than just a club. We want to do more than just hide ourselves from the sinfulness of the world around us in pride as though we weren't like that and don't still struggle with the same. Father, you've called us to be fishers of men. You've called us to be like you. You've called us to do spiritual good to others. As we continue to take next steps individually and as a church, would you remind us that our call is to take the gospel out, to call people to believe, to warn them of the impending shipwreck, to to, to invite them to, to first faith in you and then also to life in the church, and then we will continue to raise them up and disciple them and preach the word. But you have loved us, and you gave up your life to rescue us, and you have called us to be disciples to be little Christ, to be like you, to be fishers of men. Do great things through us for the salvation of the lost and for your glory.
And we ask it in Jesus' name.